Good morning, church family. It's great to see you on this beautiful day. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we started a new sermon series last week on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because we're actually joining the great history of the church as the church has often, during the season of Lent and Easter, worked its way through this creed. And, and the reason we do that is, first of all, to remind ourselves what it is that we believe as Christians, and then also to remember who we are. And I love that we just sang earlier in the, the first uh, the hymn that uh, we said we, we sing this in an age of change and doubt. And this is the age that we're in, an age of constant conflicting and contradictory beliefs, an age in which many, many people feel rootless and isolated and adrift. And so when we confess this creed, we're first of all putting our roots deep uh, in the, the biblical historicity of our faith, remembering what it is that we believe, but we're also declaring our identity, uh, that who we are is people who are loved by the triune God in relationship to the Father, to the Son, uh, and to the Spirit. So we're remembering what we believe in, who we are. So today we, we get to the first major clause of the creed, Father Almighty, um, and so we'll, we'll read this scripture this morning from Galatians chapter 4. So if you'll look there in the bulletin on uh, page 9, or you can uh, look in your Bibles on the book of Galatians. So let's hear these words from the Apostle Paul together. Verse 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Before I jump into this phrase, Father Almighty, I'd like to say something about the, the creed as a whole and what it is that we confess. You know, when we say in the beginning those words, I believe in God, you know, that itself is not actually a very controversial thing. Most people believe in God. The, uh, the majority of the planet believes in God. More than 80% of Americans believe in God. So, um, you know, I, I'm happy another time if you want to, to have a philosophical debate about the existence of God. I enjoy doing that. Uh, but that's not what I'm going to do right now because that's not particularly de debatable for most people. What's controversial about the creed is not some general belief in God, but the particular God that we are confessing, that we are confessing the God who is named Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is the most essential truth of the Christian faith that in many ways makes Christianity Christianity. Uh, it's not an extra. It's not an add-on. It's not like adding guacamole into your bowl at Chipotle, you know, throwing some Trinity on there, you know, along with all my, my other beliefs. It's not like that. It's actually the, the very heart of our faith, and it's what differentiates our faith. I mean, many um, Mus Muslims believe in one God who is a God of justice uh, and power. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the atonement that Christ gave himself sacrificially for sin. Um, many branches of Judaism believe in resurrection, uh, and many Buddhists believe in grace, believe in salvation by grace. And so what makes Christianity unique is actually the Trinity, this confession of God as three persons. This is the cockpit. This is the meat. This is the truth 
that defines all other truths, which leads us to ask the natural question, so what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? And maybe you've heard some helpful uh, or not so helpful analogies to describe what the Trinity is. Sometimes people say, you know, the Trinity is like water that can be ice and uh, vapor and liquid all at the same time, or people say it's, it's like a man who is all at the same time an uncle and a father and a son, or I've even heard people say the Trinity is like three in one shampoo, you know, that does sort of three things at once. I, I, I personally don't think any of those analogies are particularly helpful. In some ways, they actually are unhelpful because they just actually say things that aren't true about God. God is not one God who shows up in three different ways. That's actually an early heresy called modalism, um, nor is God one God in three parts, or nor are there three gods, that's partialism, or the heresy of tritheism. We won't go into those today, but in particular, those are not generally helpful. Let me suggest to you what I think is helpful. When often we think about God, uh, we think about God as just some like sort of cloudy philosophical essence up there in the sky. Here, I have a little illustration here of this person trying to relate to this this essence of God. Now, if you're a Christian, then you try to sort of stuff the idea of the Trinity um, into, into that idea of God. And that's, it's not very relatable. I mean, it, how, how do you, when you pray, you know, you think about a thing or a force, um, it's hard to picture this invisible essence of, of God. How, how do you relate to a God that is like that, just sort of this divine essence up there in the sky somewhere? Well, the answer is you don't. You can't relate to a God like that. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has revealed, sorry, that Jesus has revealed who God is to us. And when Jesus, if you read the Gospels, you see that when Jesus talks about God, he never uses philosophical language. He doesn't talk about different uh, theistic attributes of God. When Jesus talks about God, he just simply talks about a community of three persons. He talks about the Father, and he talks about the Son, and he talks about the Spirit. There's no essence of God hiding behind those three persons. It's just three persons living in beautiful love for all eternity. Uh, the three in one, the one in three, so united that we refer to them as one God. And so the good news is for you and for me is that you're not being invited to relate to God like some weird essence up in the sky. When you're being invited to have a relationship with God, what it means is that you're, you can have a relationship with the Father, and you can have a relationship with the Son, and you can have a relationship with the Spirit. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is to learn to live in relationship with this Trinity that, that loves you. And my own relationship with God, and I think yours can too, be profoundly deepened and changed if you stop trying to relate to God as some like weird cloud up in the sky somewhere and you actually relate to him as he's revealed himself to be, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what we're going to spend this series exploring, what it means to relate to that God. So the Trinity is the heart of our faith, and not just the heart of our faith, but the heart of ultimate reality. When we confess our faith, we confess that the ultimate truth at the heart of reality is divine love, a community of persons giving themselves to one another for all eternity. And the meaning of life is, is that you are invited to participate in that community of love forever. So that leads us really to our, the, the, the truth that we're looking at today, and that is that I believe in God the Father 
Almighty. What does that mean? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, once said that when we encounter the God of the Bible, we encounter what he called, listen to this great phrase, a set of paradoxical excellencies. Don't you love that? Paradoxical excellencies. We see in God attributes that appear contradictory, but in God are wholly in harmony. Paradoxical excellencies. And that's what we encounter when we reflect on this phrase, Father Almighty. So let's first look at Father, and then let's look at Almighty, and then bring them together and apply. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me? Okay, so first, Father. What does it mean when Christians confess God as Father? Well, let me first say what it does not mean. This does not mean that God is a man. I really hope you, you, you hear me on that. Many feminist theologians in recent years have raised serious concern about calling God Father. Doesn't this encourage, they say, seeing God as this bearded man up in the sky, reinforcing these deeply held patriarchal stereotypes of God? And you know what? I'm very sympathetic to those concerns, and we need to listen carefully to, to those criticisms. Too often, the church throughout history has identified God with masculinity. And one tragic result of that in the history of the church is that often the voices and the leadership of women have been pushed aside uh, and, and marginalized. And so that is a huge mistake. Some of the earliest theologians, like Gregory of Nyssa in the third century, uh, wrote that when we call God Father, we emphatically are not saying that God is a male. God transcends human categories of biology and gender. And so I think it, it really behooves us to, first of all, fill out our picture of God with biblical images of God that are more feminine, the Old Testament is full of feminine uh, similes of God. Jesus himself said, compared God to a mother hen uh, seeking to gather her young to himself. Uh, we need to work hard to address injustices that women have faced in the church, which is one reason why I love our, our particular denomination that celebrates the important and vital gifts and leadership of women in the church. So the reason, and this is my point, the reason we call God Father is not because the term made sense to an ancient patriarchal society. And so now in our more modern times, we can cast it off as no longer being culturally relevant. No, no, the reason we call God Father is why? Because of Jesus. Because that is who Jesus revealed God to be and the name that Jesus gave him and then gave that name to us. When you look at Jesus and how he described God in the gospels, he emphatically, uniquely addressed God as father. As far as we know, the first rabbi in human history to ever do so. The Old Testament itself is quite reticent about calling God father. Only less than 15 times does the Old Testament address God as father. However, when we shift to the New Testament, Jesus calls God father more than 170 times in the four gospels alone. And even more, he goes beyond calling God Father, and he uses an Aramaic word, Abba, not the Swedish band, um, but Abba, which was sort of a pet name for dad, sort of like daddy or papa in the language of Aramaic. So this was scandalous. No one had ever referred to God in that kind of intimate, personal way. And so... Not only was Jesus scandalous in the way that he addressed God, but also in how he describes God. And this is very important because 
I, I, I actually know this to be true, that many of you may struggle with calling God Father, maybe not because of the gender debate, but because of your actual dads. Uh, some of you had bad fathers. Uh, some of you had fathers who neglected you, um, abused you, or were not even there at all. And even the best fathers among us can be petty, uh, selfish, and more focused on their phones than their own kids. I will confess that myself. And so we're right to have concerns about taking our own pictures of our human fathers and projecting them onto God. But this is why it's so important to listen to Jesus, because Jesus is saying, y'all, don't you understand? My father is not like your, your father. He described a different kind of father. He described the father in Luke 15 in the prodigal son story of this amazing father whose son wished him dead, took his money, went to a far off country, spent it on drugs and prostitutes. And then spent, after losing everything, groveled back home to his dad, hoping to be hired by a, like a servant. And his father saw him from a far distance and picked up his robes and made a fool of himself before the village and threw himself upon his son and hugged him and wept and cried and embraced him and gave him his very best robe and his very best ring and his very best calf. This is a father unlike any patriarchal father that anyone had ever heard of, acting more like an ancient mother than a, a father. And Jesus says, look, I know that some of you have baggage when it comes to your dad. But don't, 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 don't take your dad and that picture of him and then project it onto your dad. No, this is my father who's generous and kind and loving and forgiving and merciful and longs to have your love. And if you are connected with me, then my father can be your father too. And that's truly the most amazing thing of all is because not only does Jesus address him as father, not only does he describe him as this unique and loving father, but then he says he can be your father too. This is what our text from Galatians is all about. It says here in this text that, that God sent his son, capital S son, born of a woman, born under law, that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, let me explain what this is saying. It's saying, first of all, that Jesus is the Son, the capital S Son, as we say in the Nicene Creed, eternally begotten of the Father. That means that the Father and the Son have existed in perfect and intimate relationship with each other forever with no beginning. Try to think about that. I'll give you a headache. So this, Jesus is the unique and perfect, eternal, divine Son of God by nature, and yet, he invites us to share his own eternal, intimate relationship with the Father. It says here that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, this sounds sexist in our modern ears. Why does it say sonship? But the reason is, is because it was actually scandalously progressive in the first century for Jesus, for Paul to say such a thing, because it's saying that everyone, men and Women, underscore women, who in that time were treated little more than property, that women and men, girls and boys are invited in Jesus to 
actually possessed the full rights and inheritance as much as the firstborn son in a family, and in this case, the beautiful family of the Trinity. Every person, women and men, girls and boys, in relationship to Jesus now share Jesus' own relationship to the Father, that we too can call him Papa, Abba. Daddy, what Jesus is to, listen, what Jesus is to God by nature, we now get to have with God by grace, through the grace of Jesus. Do you know the story about the soldier uh, in the Civil War who experienced a serious family tragedy and had gotten uh, access to request military leave from the president? And so, but when he got to the White House to talk to the president, he was turned away and he sat down on the curb and he was sobbing and a little boy came along. And the boy asked him what was wrong and the soldier sort of poured out his heart and the, and the boy's heart was moved and he said, come with me. And so they stood up and they walked to the White House and then the boy walked to the back of the White House and walked through the gate. Nobody stopped them. And then the boy walked right up to the, the back door of the White House and the guards were sitting there. He walked right, he just opened the door, walked right in past the guards. And then they walk down the hallway, they walk past generals, they walk past admirals, they walk past all these soldiers. They walk right up to the presidential office, didn't even knock, just opened the door, walked right in. There standing, Abraham Lincoln, talking to his secretary of state. Abraham Lincoln interrupts the secretary, says, looks at the boy, says, Todd, what can I do for you? And the boy says, Dad, this soldier needs your help. The son brings us right into the Father's presence. And the analogy really breaks down because it's not just access, it's adoption, that we actually become children of the eternal Father with all of the rights and privileges and inheritance of the Son. Jesus gives us the same intimacy with the Father that he has had for all eternity. (laughs) If that doesn't change your life and fill you with a sense of love and change your self-image, give you a sense of worth and value as the beloved of the Father, then nothing will. Father. The second word, though, is, is almighty. Almighty. You know, we like this idea of a loving God, and that makes sense to us. Here's the problem, though. If God is only this kind of God to you, then eventually God sort of becomes like a, a nice grandpa who gives you lots of candy, but never disciplines you. Not that I know of any grandpas like that. Mm. Um, so, so he just sort of becomes this nice grandpa or like a friendly fireman who's there just to kind of get you out of trouble if, you're, if you need help. Um, and the, and the, the worst thing about that kind of God is that you're ultimately in control. You know, you've got, a lot, you've got an agenda, you've got certain wants and needs and demands, and that God is there to just kind of help you achieve your personal desires. Well, the creed corrects our imbalances and helps us to become well-rounded Christians. Have you ever been to the gym and seen these gym rats who, like these men who all they focus on are their, you know, their chest and their, and their upper arms? And so they're like huge up here, but they neglect, they, so they look like upside down pears with toothpicks for legs, right? So they're really imbalanced because all they focus on is their upper body and they neglect their lower body, right? We can become like that theologically too, where we tend to all, you know, whether because of our temperament or our personality or our culture, drift towards certain attributes of God to the neglect of others. And so not only do we become imbalanced in our thinking, but also in our 
in our personhood. And it's safe to say, very generally speaking, that American Christians love the idea of a kind and loving and forgiving God, but tend to bristle at the idea of a powerful, almighty, uh, authoritative God. But see, the creed keeps us straight. The creed doesn't just say Father. It also says Almighty. And, and, and this is the God of the Bible. When, what happens when people in the Bible meet God? They fall on their faces. I mean, Isaiah 6, he meets God and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord Almighty. And he thinks he's going to die. And God in the Bible is not just kind, but he's all powerful, upholding, creating, sustaining, judging, ruling. Uh, the American essayist Annie Dillard has this great essay about this. She says, uh, you know, when we come to church, you know, we often wear like pretty hats. Instead, she says, we should wear crash helmets. She said, ushers should, instead of bulletins, issue life preservers uh, and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews because the God that we often so blithely invoke is the righteous judge of the earth, the holy and almighty God of all things. This is not the kind of God that you can make into your personal assistant. This is, this, the right question for this God is not, how can God help me uh, achieve my, my dreams? No, this, 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 the right question to ask this God is, how can I surrender to Almighty God and let him challenge and change my life according to his will? And so you see, we need both. We need Father, but we also need Almighty. And what the creed teaches us, as I said earlier, is it gives us these paradoxical excellencies, that we need both of these attributes of God. Do you remember that stupid movie, uh, Bruce Almighty, with, uh, uh, what's his face? Yeah, Jim Carrey, thanks. Um, you know, that is a picture of what God would look like as pure power with no love or compassion or wisdom. You know, who wants a father without, I mean, who wants an almighty without the father? But on the other hand, who wants a father without an almighty? Who wants a God who's just like a sentimental pushover? who never disciplines you, never corrects you, never, never asks you for anything, never demands anything. That, I mean, that's, not a, that's, that's a senile uncle. That's a, that's a God you can manipulate for your purposes. So what we need is Father Almighty, a God who loves and nurtures and provides, and also a God who challenges and convicts and rules. We need a Father who is Almighty. We need an Almighty who is a Father. And this is why I love that the... the Heidelberg Catechism said, as we said earlier, he is able to do so as Almighty God, and he is willing as a faithful father. He is able because he's God of power. He's willing because he's a father of love. One without the other is a made-up God, a God of fantasy. So let's just close by asking this. What difference does this make? You know, if you were going to relate to, to God as a Father Almighty, what difference should it make in your life? Well, the first one is simple because it's the application that Jesus makes, and that's prayer. You know, when Jesus' friends saw Jesus praying, they said, we want to learn how to pray like that, Jesus. And so he said, well, just say this, our Father. He invites them to share in his own relationship to the Father in prayer. So if you want to learn how to pray, they're, they're, the most important thing is not learning technique. It's learning that you are a child who has total access to a father who loves you. You're not a subject approaching a monarch. You're not a servant groveling to a master. You're a child running to a father. You know, the parent-child relationship is so unique, 
and so unconditional, now, even more than a spouse. You know, when your spouse wakes you up at two in the morning and asks you for a cup of water, now what do you say? Get it yourself. That's what you say, <laughs> right? right? But when your little five-year-old girl wakes you up at two in the morning and asks for a cup of water, what do you do? You get up and you go. I mean, it's so unconditional. Even the most important people in the world, queens and kings and presidents and prime ministers who are only super special important people have access to them except their little ones. They're children who have access to them at any, any time. Nobody says, hey, get an appointment. You know, they just come. They come. And Jesus says, do you see that your relationship with God is like that? That intimate, that personal and unconditional, that you have access to the most important father in the universe. Through Christ, we have access to the father by one spirit, Ephesians 2.18. And so I just want to say this to those of you who might be out there and you are feeling very far from God. Maybe you haven't talked to God in a long time, maybe, maybe months, maybe years, maybe, maybe never. I, I want you to hear this, is that you, you don't have to work your way back into God's presence. You don't have to pull your life together. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to beg. You have a father who just says, come. The door is wide open. He receives you as you are with all of your needs and all of your burdens. He delights in his children coming to him. Do you know that about your own relationship to the Father? And so I just want to invite you this week to pray, to try to pray for all the littlest things in your life that burden you and upset you. And when you pray, say this, say, my Father Address God that way, my Father. Now, I know that some of you say God or Lord, and that's totally fine. Just try this for a week, saying, my Father. And when you do, relish, say it slowly, relish that word. Delight in it, that you are expressing the privilege that is yours as God's child. My Father, help me. My Father, lead me. My Father, I need you. Prayer. Another application, I think, is worry and fear. We have much worry and fear in our lives these days. Uh, some of us experience paralyzing anxiety, whether it's about the stock market or the coronavirus or the threat of nuclear war or climate change or um, all this election drama or uh, things in your own life, cancer, illness, jobs, career, children, grandchildren. I mean, there's just no shortage of things to be really worried about. And anxiety is complex and there are many roots, and I don't want to oversimplify, but yet I think the root of many of our anxieties is the deeply held conviction that you are alone and that no one's taking care of you and that it's up to you to take care of your own life and future. You know, when our oldest, um, Sophia, was a little girl, about five years old, Sarah and I had this mix-up where um, she thought that I had her and so she left to go to the park with our other children and I thought that Sarah had her, and so about 20 minutes later, I left also, and neither of us knew that she was, Sophia was actually sleeping upstairs in her bedroom, taking a nap by herself. And so about 20 minutes later, she wakes up and comes down the stairs, and it's an empty house. Mom! Dad! Silence. You know, minutes go by, minutes... Panic sets in, you know, so she just does what any 
a smart little girl does. She goes to find a neighbor. She leaves, walks down, knocks on a door, knocks on another door, eventually finds someone, and they say, oh, where are your parents, little girl? I mean, this was a terrible experience, and not just for her, but for us, because she wrote about this in her school essays for years. And uh, <laughs> lucky we're not called by Child Protection Services. Anyway, um, you know, many of us feel this way, as if we have woken up one day and we are in the house of the world and we're just, we're alone. And there's no parent. There's no father. There's no one to take care of us. That is up to us to guard and protect ourselves from all threats. That is up to, to us to secure our future. It's up to us to, to fix our problems. And as a result, our lives are just riddled with fear. And Jesus deeply challenges this. He says, you are not alone. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? He challenges the lie. He says, you're not alone. You're not an orphan in a chaotic universe. You have a Father. You are loved. You are treasured. God is intimately involved in your everyday life. He's not just concerned with your soul. He's concerned with your, your body and your, your physical life, financial life, your, your family. He holds your future. He cares for you. He, he attends to the smallest needs in your life. Your life is forever secure in the Father's hands. So he calls us to know our place as children who are loved. I love this phrase that we said from the catechism again. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will turn my good whatever adversity he sends in this life of sorrow. Now, I don't believe that fully, but I'm pressing into it. And I invite you to. He's your father. You're free. One last thing. Very quick here. Personal maturity. Many of us suffer from some sort of personality imbalance like the guy in the gym, right? Some of us are nice and, and loving and forgiving uh, and compassionate, but you might just be a pushover, uh, afraid of conflict, afraid of what people think of you. And others of us are people of deep convictions and we're willing to speak truth and carry out justice and you don't care what people think, but you can be harsh or condemning or insensitive or brash. And this causes great harm. Either way. I mean, I'm more like the first person, and I will tell you, I have caused harm. I've caused harm to my family. I've caused harm to the church. I've caused harm to the people I lead. And our imbalances do this. They inflict wounds on ourselves and other people. So how can we grow up? Well, by knowing that we are children of the father of paradoxical excellencies. The more we come to know the father, who is both Father and Almighty, love and justice, power and tenderness, the more you will become a person like that, a person of sensitivity and conviction, of grace and justice, love and power, humility and boldness. The Father delights in making his children more like himself. So friends, let's delight in the Trinity. Let's delight in God the Son who has died and risen to give us his own relationship to the Father. Let's delight in God the Father who is both tender and powerful, loving, and mighty. And let's delight in God the Spirit, who connects us to the Father and the Son, and who makes us more and more like Christ. This is not just true, uh, it is beautiful. So we say, all praise be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, 
we do thank you that you love us, that we belong to you through Jesus. Help us to live more and more as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.